Aaron Rodgers is good. Yeah. Aaron Rodgers is the highest functioning quarterback the NFL has ever seen. No quarterback has ever possessed his combination of mobility, instincts, arm strength, accuracy. Never. We've never seen it. And my guess is, based on the quarterback play we're seeing at the college level, we won't see another Aaron Rodgers for many, many, many years, maybe in my lifetime. He's that good. And we talk about checking all the boxes on the Roto Underworld radio show. Well, Aaron Rodgers checks all the boxes, except the ones that don't matter, like being big and tall. He's only 6'2", 223. He's not 6'5", 240. And that doesn't matter. Physically and mentally, if we were looking at Leonardo's Vitruvian Man, Aaron Rodgers scores highly in every zone. High intelligence in the head portion. Incredible precision in the midsection. Incredible power in the arm. Incredible quickness in the lower body. He drops it in the bucket deep. He throws into tight windows in the intermediate routes. And he has soft touch on short passes. There's nothing that Aaron Rodgers doesn't do well. And yet, his statistics on Sunday were equaled by Dak Prescott. Aaron Rodgers, 356 yards on 43 attempts. Dak Prescott, 302 yards on only 38 attempts. Aaron Rodgers, two touchdowns. Dak Prescott, three touchdowns. Aaron Rodgers, one interception. Dak Prescott, one interception. Aaron Rodgers had a slightly higher QBR. Dak Prescott had a slightly higher passer rating. So why is the focus on Aaron Rodgers' greatness, not Dak Prescott's? Context. Dak Prescott is the cog in a wheel of a super team. Aaron Rodgers is the team. And sports analysts have such a hard time detangling individual performances from the support of one's team. Analyzing individual performances in a team context is challenging. But it's a task worth undertaking, is it not? Don't we want to know how good these players actually are? That's what we do at playerprofiler.com. We are focused on dissecting the individual player's opportunity, productivity, efficiency, always striving for a better understanding of that player's quality. In fact, we now have quality score. If you go to playerprofiler.com forward slash data dash analysis, there you can query any metric across players. You can say, show me all the running backs yards per touch. In 2016, 2015, 2014, 2013, we have four years of college performance data, workout metric data, opportunity, productivity, efficiency data, all at your fingertips via data analysis. And we now have a data analysis only metric called quality score, which is an aggregate metric factors in a player's stature, their college resume, their workout metrics, and most importantly, their on-field opportunity and efficiency metrics to create one overarching score on a player, quality score for each player. So I highly recommend you go to playerprofiler.com, you sign up for data analysis, you check out quality score, and you can start pulling lists of players based on any metric you want. I play with it constantly every day. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that came out wrong. Well, and then that just came out wrong. So on playerprofiler.com, we're interested in facts about players and honing in on their intrinsic qualities. 
That is the guiding force behind playerprofiler.com and the entire Roto Underworld enterprise. And we also focus on the positive here. That's why I wanted to open the show celebrating Aaron Rodgers, not second-guessing Cowboys coaches, not criticizing Thomas Rawls for being just a dude guy. He is, but we only mention that in the context of Thomas Rawls being overvalued in fantasy football. We would have no reason to label Thomas Rawls a dude guy if fantasy football enthusiasts simply valued him properly. There would be no disparagement. And to be clear, the disparagement is not of Thomas Rawls himself. It is of his valuation. It is of his perception. We do not hate players. We hate their ADPs. I don't hate Kelvin Benjamin. I just thought his ADP in 2016 was misguided. Fantasy enthusiasts misvalued him, miscalculated Kelvin Benjamin's value to their fantasy team, and it was reflected in an ADP that he grossly underperformed. And while I sometimes enjoy laughing at the entertainers, mocking their behavior or their performances, not the person themselves, but their actions, yes, I get some enjoyment out of that. We make jokes. Sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're not. But on this show, we try not to mock others. Whether it be a rival fantasy analyst, whether it be a player, there's no reason for personal attacks. Zero. You can be funny without attacking someone personally. You can reveal a truth about someone in jest without damaging their psyche. I mean, how many times have I criticized Aaron Rodgers' behavior this year? A lot. I did it over the weekend, writing on Twitter, if he weren't humiliating his receivers publicly, he wouldn't be Aaron Rodgers. It's the actions I object to and mock. Personal attacks are not clever. Mocking Aaron Rodgers because he's been alienated from his family is not clever. It's not worthy of mockery. It's not funny. It's really not. I read tweets with this subject matter on Sunday. The only thing that can stop Aaron Rodgers is his family. Ha 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 ha. That joke garnered 100 retweets. And that's why we do this show. To share my sentiments with the audience that that joke is not worthy of your republishment. Those sentiments are corrosive. And they push the entertainers and the public figures further away from the public. The more you feel comfortable using Aaron Rodgers' family dynamics as a prop for a joke the less access Aaron Rodgers will grant us to his life. This is the insidious nature of social media that infects all of us, mocking the personal life of public figures. It's an epidemic, but I feel we are racing toward a cure. Twitter is becoming more and more popular. I didn't think it was possible, but yes, it's becoming even more popular, mostly because Donald Trump won't stop tweeting. And as more and more people join these online conversations... The insecurities that drive a lot of this inappropriate mockery are exposed and rectified. But people are still gross, and they're still going to be gross, and we should continue to be vigilant and object to it when it happens. There is very little difference between Aaron Rodgers being alienated from his family and Aaron Rodgers losing his family in a tragedy. They're gone from his life one way or another, and it's heartbreaking. I see nothing funny in that. And this is a problem that predominantly afflicts the wealthy and the celebrity. And those happen to be the individuals in our culture for which many people have no sympathy whatsoever. The professional athlete making tens of millions of dollars playing a game for a living? Fuck him! Many of these miserable sports fucks even hate college athletes like Leonard Fournette 
and Christian McCaffrey for merely not playing in a meaningless game that they're not being compensated for. It's why strikes are very rarely successful for the players' unions, because the public lines up at support with ownership. Sports fans claim to love the players they cheer for on Sundays, all the while resenting their existence, resenting their celebrity, and resenting their wealth. The petulant billionaire owners, they earned their wealth, but not the athletes. But there is a common tale told among celebrities and wealthy individuals. The tale of the disowned family. Because when a member of a family becomes famous or acquires wealth, oftentimes members of that family will impose upon the wealthy individual, impose upon the celebrity. And it's not merely a request for money. If it was merely a request for money, that can be rebuffed. But that's not what happens. What you commonly see is a coordinated effort among the family members conspiring against their most successful family member to extract as much wealth and privilege from that individual. And sometimes it takes decades for the famous person to realize what's been happening to them, for the scales to fall from their eyes. And then when they see their family members for what they really are, when they see that so much of the behavior was calculated, when the premeditated manipulation has been unveiled, it's devastating. It is heartbreaking. I talked earlier about how Dana Carvey was originally cast as the lead in Bad Boys. That happened. True story. Look it up. I learned that in an interview that I listened to on the Mark Marin show with Dana Carvey. And Dana Carvey also shared a heartbreaking story about how he became alienated from his family, how his mother and his father became obsessed with siphoning as much of Dana Carvey's wealth into their own bank accounts. And the tactics they used were cunning and devious. His parents perpetrated that. You find out that the people you thought loved you most in this world only love themselves. And many sports stars and celebrities are faced with this reality at some point, And they have to make a decision. Am I going to stand up to my family and say, no, and not just no, no more money. No, you're no longer part of my life. You are a negative influence. You make me unhappy. Or accept the depliciousness of the family members and become a cuckold. Deciding between the best of bad choices. And I would imagine that's what happened to Aaron Rodgers. Because what do you think happened? You think that he just woke up one day and decided he was too good for his family? That the genuine love and support of those that brought him into this world, nurtured him, and grew with him into adulthood? Do you think that he one day woke up, looked at those individuals and said, Fuck you? Of course not! No, I think Aaron Rodgers is one of the most pretentious individuals in the NFL. Aaron Rodgers is absolutely a snob. And if Aaron Rodgers' sensibilities were closer to Brett Favre, he would appreciate Jeff Janis. But they're not, and he doesn't. But that doesn't mean he doesn't appreciate his family. Snobbery alone is not enough to disown your parents. You mad? Who would think that? In these situations... When a famous person has a relationship with non-famous individuals, when a wealthy person has relationships with non-wealthy people, it can create tension. And usually, it's the fault of the person without the fame and without the fortune, imposing on the person that they perceive has endless amounts of funds. 
taking advantage of the meal ticket they've won. They won it. Aaron Rodgers' parents deserve wealth and privilege. They brought Aaron Rodgers into this world. That was their accomplishment. They deserve to share in whatever wealth and glory Aaron Rodgers achieves. Right? 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 Wrong! Wrong! It's that attitude. That's the attitude that destroys the families of so many wealthy individuals and celebrities. I mean, Dana Carvey was almost emotionally destroyed by his parents. Dana Carvey? A friendly, good-natured guy that can make light of anything? That guy? That guy was laid low by his parents? Now make that guy self-serious. Wealth and celebrity does not go well for a lot of people. I mean, John Steinbeck wrote the quintessential book about this concept called The Pearl. When you are thrust into the limelight, when you are suddenly bequeathed wealth and privilege, your life becomes exponentially more challenging. So I won't be mocking Aaron Rodgers because his relationship with the people that he has loved the most in this world has disintegrated. No, that's not something to make light of. But I will make light of this buzzard wish list. I asked the buzzards, what do you want me to talk about in January? And here was the list. Late round everything targets. Uncovering your master plan for getting rid of Grigson. That was number two. Number three, funeral recaps and dance party recap. We did that already. Number four, making fun of Laquan Treadwell. Number five, recap Amari Cooper versus Doriel Green Beckham debate. We really should do that. Continues to make me laugh to this day. Wide receiver experts like Matt Harmon ranking Doriel Green Beckham ahead of Amari Cooper heading into the 2015 draft. I will never forget that. Kristen Michael lessons learned. Woof! Told you so. Number seven, zero RB versus first round running back, then load up on receivers for 2017. So basically, wide receiver times six versus RB wide receiver times six. That's a multi-show discussion, and we will talk about it. More dude guys. Yes, we will identify more dude guys this year. No question. Who am I still a truther for? Yes. Truther Radio. That is coming in 2017. And finally, continue to rip Michael Fabiano. Well, that's up to Michael Fabiano. I don't just look at Michael Fabiano's face and start ripping him. I just offered up a 15-minute soliloquy on that exact topic. So there will be no personal attacks of Michael Fabiano, of course, but I will put the chances of me criticizing Michael Fabiano's fantasy analysis at 99%. 99% chance Michael Fabiano says something objectionable about a particular fantasy football player or strategy in 2017. Now, how do you get your topic on this list? It's easy. You become an official minion. You become an official patron of the show. Go to playerprofiler.com forward slash podcasts. And there you will see. And at the top, it reads, become an official minion. Click the button, learn more, and it will take you to a special page where you can sign up to be an official supporter of the show. And if you've been listening to the show for free for many weeks and months, some of you years, you're obliged to become a patron. Because otherwise, you're a free rider. And I don't respect free riders, so I don't respect you. If you've been enjoying my content free of charge, all the while knowing about the patron program, knowing there's a vehicle for you to compensate me, once you know about the patron program, it's 6 or $8 per month. $6 a month gets you a free Roto Underworld t-shirt and the ability to suggest show topics and drive the content of the show. 
So you get free swag and you become an official producer of the show when you sign up to become an official minion or you can opt to become an official buzzard. Both designations are available and they're both equally respected. But I don't respect those who know this program exists and don't participate while continuing to enjoy the content for free. That's not how media works in 2017. We're now at a place where instead of being compelled to pay or facing some kind of cheesy paywall, instead you simply volunteer to support the show because you know it's the right thing to do. And you get really cool gear in the deal and you get to tell me what topics you want me to talk about. You become a producer of the show. So go to playerprofiler.com forward slash podcasts now, click on learn more and sign up to become a patron if you aren't already. And this suggestion just came in from a patron on Twitter. Do not stop defending your position that Tony Romo gave the Cowboys a better chance to win than Dak Prescott. You are the only voice in the entire fantasy football industry that is saying this. It is vintage fantasy mansion. You need to keep it up. The Minion Army was built on these kinds of contrarian takes. Well, okay. All you had to do was ask. Because it was a home game for Dallas. They did a great job in the regular season. They achieved a bye and home field advantage in the divisional round of the playoffs. And how did they parlay that success? By bringing a knife to a gunfight. That's the one thing you cannot do in the playoffs. You cannot bring a knife to a gunfight. If your opponent's bringing a gun, you need to also bring a gun. You can't bring a knife. Green Bay brought a gun to a gunfight. Dallas brought a knife to a gunfight. Green Bay's gun was Aaron Rodgers. Dallas's knife was Dak Prescott. And Dallas could have brought a gun to a gunfight. They could have started Tony Romo, and they chose not to. And that was a mistake. That decision changed the outcome of that game. If Tony Romo starts that game, the Dallas Cowboys win. Because Dallas posts 40-plus points if Tony Romo plays. It's that simple. That's not even a big leap to make. Simple calculus. But no, 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 no. No one, no one wants to hear that. You all think that reminding me that quote-unquote Dak played well on Twitter is going to somehow change my mind. Well, thanks for that. So many people tweeting me Dak Prescott's box score. Yeah, I have it. Do you think I don't have a box score app on my phone? Is that what you people really think? You think I don't have the box score app? I have the CBS box score app. I have the NFL.com box score app. I have the ESPN box score app. I don't need your box scores in my mentions. I have the stats. I read them earlier. Of course I know the stats. Yes, I know Dak Prescott had three touchdowns. Thank you. Do you think you're being helpful? Are you showing off your sports knowledge? You have access to the box scores? Am I supposed to be impressed? Like, What is happening there? The psyche of the individual who tweets an analyst box score data. What's happening? What's happening in the gerbil wheel powered mind of that particular buzzard? It's exasperating. And we saw, we've talked about this for weeks. We've talked about this for months. We talked about this with John Paulson in October, that there is a hidden cost of starting Dak Prescott over a healthy Tony Romo. The hidden cost is less points scored. The points you don't score are hidden from you when you start your second best quarterback. 
and it manifested last Sunday against the Green Bay Packers. And I understand it wasn't an easy decision. If it was an easy decision, everyone would be criticizing the fact that the Dallas Cowboys started Dak Prescott over Tony Romo on Sunday. And yet, that's not happening. It's not happening because it wasn't obvious. I continue to be the only individual in sports media that has a microphone. Not the fantasy football industry. All of sports media. The only one insisting that the Cowboys blundered by starting Dak Prescott over Tony Romo because you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. It sounds simple, but it was complicated. I understand that the public believed that Dak Prescott gave the Cowboys a better chance to win, even though that was incorrect. And I understand that the Cowboys were very proud of themselves for drafting Dak Prescott, and they wanted to see Dak Prescott succeed. They very much wanted Dak Prescott to win the Super Bowl. Imagine how proud the Steelers were for drafting Ben Roethlisberger when they won the Super Bowl in 2004. That's the last time a rookie quarterback won a Super Bowl. It doesn't happen very often because rookie quarterbacks are very rarely equipped with the skills to win a Super Bowl. And yes, Dak Prescott was equipped with necessary game management skills to win a Super Bowl. Dak Prescott paired with an elite defense, peak Seattle Seahawks defense of three years ago. Even that great Steelers defense of 12 years ago. Peak Ravens defense of 15 years ago. In that scenario, I can see Dak Prescott winning a Super Bowl. But this was the great failing of the Dallas Cowboys. The inability to self-scout. They were delusional thinking that Dak Prescott had the ability to lead a team that did not have an elite defense to a Super Bowl. It was impossible. It wasn't going to happen. And to an objective observer like myself, who has no stake in the Cowboys' success, it was apparent to me, the only way the Cowboys win a Super Bowl is with Tony Romo. There's not enough firepower in Dak Prescott's arm to propel the Cowboys to a Super Bowl this season. But the Cowboys' decision-making process was not that simple. It was muddled. It was muddled by public relations, and it was muddled by hubris. When you make decisions as an organization based on public relations and hubris, that's how you lose a playoff home game. Because the argument I hear against starting Tony Romo the most often is, well, if Tony Romo had lost, the fans and the media would have crucified Dallas Cowboy leadership. But that's why they call them leaders! Because great leaders risk unpopularity with their decisions. The great leaders do not make decisions based on public relations. That's the essence of great leadership. Not polling the audience to make every decision. Not allowing the direction of the team to sway back and forth based on the sentiments of the fan base and the local media coverage. When you let your fan base and the sports media industrial complex to control your starting lineup decisions, you've already failed. And you certainly don't have great leadership qualities. That's what's missing in Dallas. Jason Garrett is meek and indecisive. Jerry Jones is arrogant and delusional. If you're trying to pinpoint the reason why Dallas lost, it's that. Well, Jerry, uh, I guess we can win a championship with a rookie quarterback and a mediocre defense. That sounds fine. Whatever you want, Jerry. That's why Dallas lost. And the fact that the Dallas Cowboys are run like a carnival isn't news. Do a Google search for Dallas Cowboys and circus. How many results are produced? Because in what world does it make sense to have a perennial all-pro quarterback ready and eager to play and then not play him in the most important game of the season? 
In Jerry's world, that's where Jerry Jones Hall of Mirrors, bending reality so intensely that he did the one thing that could cripple his team in the playoffs. Dallas had a super team, a completely unstoppable offense. One of the best offensive lines of all time, one of the best running backs of all time, one of the best receiving cores in the league, Jason Witten to Des Bryant, Cole Beasley, Terrence Williams. For Christ's sake, the Cowboys' number four wide receiver, Bryce Butler, is 6'3", 213 with a 1034, 96th percentile catch radius. The Dallas Cowboys were a fountain of offensive firepower, and their defense was exactly average. Defense, DVOA. 0.8%. Exactly average. Zero is the average. Dallas Cowboys were average, but you can win a Super Bowl with an average defense if your offense is exceptional, and only if your offense is exceptional. But it is impossible to engineer an exceptional and prolific offense with a rookie quarterback. It's not possible. And yet Jerry Jones did that one thing that could cripple his team in the playoffs, the thing you never do. He started a rookie quarterback who was not his best quarterback. Now, is 2016 Tony Romo 2014 Tony Romo? I don't know. The argument is, if Tony Romo is a significantly deteriorated version of his 2014 self, then this point is moot. Then this argument collapses. If, in a vacuum, Dak Prescott's quarterback skill set is superior to Tony Romo, then that ends the argument. I'm wrong. But if Tony Romo is like Drew Brees, like Tom Brady, and at age 36, his skill set has not significantly deteriorated, then he absolutely offered a superior skill set to Dak Prescott. Because in 2014, Tony Romo was the best performing quarterback in the NFL. The best combination of prolificness and efficiency. That was Tony Romo in 2014. Top of the league in production premium. Top of the league across the board in numerous efficiency metrics in 2014. Why? Because 2014 was the year Dallas implemented the high-efficiency balanced attack. Featuring the best offensive line in the NFL, the Dallas Cowboys were impossible to stop on a per-play basis. It was dealer's choice in 2014 with a healthy Tony Romo. They were more efficient in 2014 than they were in 2016 with Dak Prescott, even though in 2016 they had Ezekiel Elliott, which is an upgrade over DeMarco Murray. Terrence Williams and Cole Beasley were more seasoned in 2016 than they were in 2014, and they upgraded the offensive line between 2014 and 2016. So the supporting cast was even better, yet the efficiency was worse. Why is that? What's the one component you can point to to explain that differential, that efficiency differential? Dak Prescott. Because Dak Prescott's not Tony Romo. Because of course he's not! He's a rookie fifth-round pick! He may be the best rookie fifth-round pick we've ever seen, but he's still a rookie fifth-round pick. And Tony Romo was in the process of compiling a Hall of Fame resume when he suffered a back injury in 2015. But Dak Prescott was also incredibly efficient in 2016. He wasn't 2014 Tony Romo, but he was very good. Plus 20.2 production premium on playerprofiler.com. That's situation agnostic efficiency metric measuring Dak Prescott's performance on any given down and distance versus league average. Top three in the league. Top 10 passer rating. Top three QBR. Dak Prescott posted an 81.7 QBR. 
because of his ability to run the football and throw it. He rushed for 281 yards. That was also top 10. Six rushing touchdowns for Dak Prescott, number one in the NFL. Yards per attempt, air yards per attempt. Across the board, Dak Prescott was a highly efficient quarterback. But while Dak Prescott was highly efficient, he was not prolific. One of the reasons Dak Prescott was able to be so efficient is because he was more careful than Tony Romo with the football. Dak Prescott was an elite game manager in 2016. Most weeks, the Cowboys did not need a 300-yard performance from Dak Prescott in order to win until they did. Tony Romo has four seasons on his resume with more than 4,000 yards. One season, 2012, 4,903 yards. He almost reached 5,000 yards. Tony Romo was that ideal combination of prolific and efficient just two years ago. But Dallas chose to start an elite game manager instead, like the Steelers did in 2004, starting Ben Roethlisberger. But the 2004 Steelers did not have a Tony Romo caliber quarterback on their bench. By starting Dak Prescott, Dallas was gambling that they would not find themselves in a shootout during the playoffs. You're gambling that you're not going to find yourself in a shootout when you're facing Aaron Rodgers and the Packers, Matt Ryan and the Falcons? And either Ben Roethlisberger and the Steelers or Tom Brady and the Patriots in the Super Bowl? (laughs) At some point, you're going to have to win a shootout. And that's when you're going to need Tony Romo. Because last Sunday, Dallas was kicking field goals in the first half in situations in which Tony Romo would have been throwing touchdowns. That's the difference. But Dak Prescott had a good game. Didn't you see the box score, Matt Kelly? Yes, I know he had a good game. He didn't just have a great game. I just gave you the advanced efficiency metrics for Dak Prescott. He had a great season. But he also wasn't Tony Romo. Against Green Bay's defense, Dak Prescott did post 302 yards. He did. And that would have been a great game against the Broncos. Great. 302 yards against an onerous pass defense? That's exceptional. But against Green Bay? That's a solid game. That's not championship-level greatness. But this line continues to stream into my mentions. 302 yards, three touchdowns. These zombie, my guy, bias-soaked sports fans only want to look at a handful of numbers without factoring in any of the external forces. They don't want to think about any of the other factors. Just show me those couple numbers. Yards and touchdowns. That's it. I don't want to hear anything else. I don't want to hear about the opposing defense. I don't want to hear about the game flow. Because 300 yards against the Packers defense with pass-friendly game flow is not impressive. Dak Prescott also had an interception. Should have been two interceptions because Dak Prescott threw one of the worst passes of the season by any quarterback on a failed screenplay that would have been a pick six, blown dead because Des Bryant was offsides. That is what random chance looks like. That was the luckiest event of the weekend that Dak Prescott avoided a pick six on that abominable throw. And we're going to be tracking interceptable passes on playerprofiler.com next year and danger plays. So when a quarterback puts the ball on the ground, when a quarterback throws an interceptable pass, we're going to be tracking these things. So we do not have to suffer under the tyranny of these box score numbers for the rest of our lives. Regardless, Dak Prescott's Sunday box score was not impressive. It was the bare minimum. 
How do I know that? Because look what Matthew Stafford did a couple weeks ago against the Packers. 347 yards. And that game was close throughout. Look what Sam Bradford posted against the Packers at the end of the season. 382 yards by Sam Bradford. Matt Barkley posted 362 yards with similar game flow that Dak Prescott faced on Sunday. And Tony Romo is significantly better than all those quarterbacks that I mentioned. If you're down 21-3 in the first half against Aaron Rodgers and that Packers defense, I expect you to post 400 yards because even Sam Bradford and Matt Barkley go over 350 yards in that scenario. Because if you truly want to understand the quality of a performance, we must contextualize it rather than just looking at two numbers. Oh, Dak Prescott should have had two interceptions? Well, Tony Romo would have thrown three interceptions, Matt Kelly. Really? I keep hearing this, that Tony Romo is this interception machine. Ah, the heir to Matt Schaub. What? Part of the reason why Tony Romo has been so impressively efficient is because he takes care of the football while compiling yards and touchdowns. That's the secret sauce that Tony Romo injects into an offense that Dak Prescott cannot. Tony Romo has a greater than 2-to-1 touchdown-interception ratio for his career, and he's only gone over 15 interceptions twice in his career. A career in which Tony Romo was asked to throw the ball more than 500 times in a season on five different occasions. But this is why I love football. This is why I find football so fascinating. That a confluence of factors could line up against a player like Tony Romo preventing him from having the opportunity that he's been waiting for his whole career to stand at the helm of an offensive juggernaut. Tony Romo's been in the league 12 seasons waiting for this. This is every quarterback's dream, and he toiled on bad Cowboy teams for years. Was the most heavily scrutinized sports figure in America for a decade. A rite of passage for a sports media personality is mocking and ridiculing Tony Romo. And at the moment, it would all turn around for him. The moment when the glory was at his fingertips, it was ripped away from him and he was pushed aside. And they handed the keys to the sports car to the rookie, to the kid. That's heartbreaking. But Tony Romo's public sentiments on the matter revealed only class and grace. Tony Romo is officially become one of my favorite athletes because of how he handled this entire debacle. And it was a debacle. It was a failure of leadership that he was not the starting quarterback last Sunday. Tony Romo reminds me a lot of Jay Leno. Because Jay Leno was pushed aside for Conan O'Brien 10 years ago. They told Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien is going to take over The Tonight Show in five years when your contract expires, and we need you to go on your show and make this announcement. That's a cuckold moment right there. But that's what Jay Leno did with class and grace, explained that he would be retiring in five years. He didn't mention that it was forced upon him, and he had nothing but positive sentiments for Conan O'Brien. Five years later, the experiment failed. And Conan O'Brien was banished to TBS, and they reinstalled Jay Leno as the host of The Tonight Show. And he never forgot that emasculating moment when NBC executives forced him to publicly acknowledge and support his successor, even though he disagreed with the move. 
he politely seated the throne while seething behind the scenes. And I believe that's exactly what's going on with Tony Romo. We now know that Tony Romo is a humble individual who has retained a humble blue collar approach to the profession. That was Jay Leno's reputation. And that's Tony Romo's reputation. Every year, Tony Romo's efficiency metrics near the top of the league. Every year, Jay Leno's ratings were at the top of television. And yet, these individuals were dismissed by the public and by management. Jay Leno and Tony Romo were beaten down by critics at every turn, even though they were individuals who genuinely wanted to do the right thing, that the public refused to respect, and those sentiments inevitably influenced management's mishandling of their talent. And did the Rams mishandle star tight end Jared Cook's talent while he was in St. Louis? And before that, when he was in Tennessee? No. Jared Cook was trapped on bad offenses for the first seven years of his career. That's it. The Titans and Rams didn't mishandle Jared Cook. They simply didn't have a quarterback that could consistently deliver him the ball in scoring situations. Now Jared Cook is on the Green Bay Packers with the highest functioning quarterback that has ever been. And Mina Kimes summarized it perfectly on Twitter, at Mina, M-I-N-A-K-I-M-E-S, writes, Do you think Jared Cook ever wakes up in the middle of the night sweating, fearful that he has to go back to the Rams' offense? <laughs> yes! I believe that is a recurring nightmare that Jared Cook suffers from. That causes Jared Cook to lose sleep. Absolutely. And the question is, was Jared Cook a great tight end all along and just suffocated by Jeff Fisher? Probably not. Because Jared Cook's resurgence this season is explainable. It's the most explainable resurgence we've witnessed in football. When a player's output suddenly craters or suddenly ascends, oftentimes it's difficult to pinpoint the cause of the change, the impetus. Talked about this at the beginning of the show. Detangling cause and effect in team sports is an incredible challenge. It's like when astronomers observe distant stars and their behavior is inexplicable. All of an astronomer's mathematical formulas can indicate that a star should behave in a certain way and then it doesn't. And then only later do we learn that an unobservable black hole was causing the star to act in a way that violated the laws of astrophysics. Once the black hole is identified, you can then map out the behavior. Well, Aaron Rodgers isn't a black hole. Aaron Rodgers is the biggest star in the galaxy. We could see Aaron Rodgers. It's obvious. Jared Cook's resurgence this year was the most obvious event in the universe. Of course, he's going to produce tethered to Aaron Rodgers, particularly when the other receivers in the passing game are Jordy Nelson, who now runs a 4-7-0, Randall Cobb, who's been a replacement-level talent going back to his days at Kentucky, and Devontae Adams, who leads the league in dropping money throws from his quarterback. I saw this on Twitter a lot this weekend. Jared Cook is a different guy. Jared Cook has been reborn. So many fantasy experts got Jared Cook wrong over the years. We are now finally seeing Jared Cook for what he is, an explosive downfield talent at the tight end position. And that's all wrong. Jared Cook is the same player he was in St. Louis in Tennessee, only now he's less explosive because he's older. And whether you're looking at Rams players or Packers players, 
Big performances in the playoffs should not change your perception of those players. Big plays made with Aaron Rodgers that were not possible with Case Keenum should not change your perception of those players. That's the exercise that I implore us to partake in. All of us. The reason Player Profiler exists to make an effort beyond the box score to measure the intrinsic quality of players. So whether it's Kenny Britt and Lance Kendricks and Brian Quick and Pharaoh Cooper on the Rams or Randall Cobb and Jared Cook and Devontae Adams and Geronimo Allison on the Packers, the skill sets of those players are the same regardless of the team they're on. A more obvious statement has never tumbled from my lips on this show, but given the recent analysis of Jared Cook, I feel like I need to share these sentiments with the audience. Jared Cook's performances are not some inexplicable phenomenon. His play is elevated by Aaron Rodgers significantly, as is Randall Cobb's play, as is Devontae Adams' play, as is Geronimo Allison's play. Nothing I've seen from Jared Cook in the NFL playoffs has changed my perception of him, but it has offered an aha moment for the fantasy stock of both Kenny Britt and Brian Quick. Both are unrestricted free agents this offseason. Why do you buy Kenny Britt and buy Brian Quick this offseason? But look at Jared Cook! You buy them because... Their situations can only improve regardless of where they go. They were in the worst possible situation on the worst franchise, the LA Rams. That's where Jared Cook came from. Any of the other 31 situations would be an improvement. So buy those players in Dynasty based on that fact alone. Especially Kenny Britt. Kenny Britt had over 1,000 yards as the number one wide receiver for the LA Rams posting 68 receptions, 1,000 yards, and five touchdowns for the Rams was much more impressive than Devontae Adams posting 75 receptions for 997 yards and 12 touchdowns for the Packers. In fact, that Devontae Adams posted a 92% snap share with Aaron Rodgers at quarterback received 121 targets with Aaron Rodgers at quarterback and could not eclipse 1,000 receiving yards with Aaron Rodgers at quarterback tells you everything you need to know about Devontae Adams. He's not good at football. He dropped 7% of his targets. Every other game, Devontae Adams was dropping a pass. 62% catch rate outside the top 40. 8.2 yards per target outside the top 40. That's Devontae Adams. That's with Aaron Rodgers. Recalibrate your valuation system of Devontae Adams by factoring in quarterback play. Uh, uh, imagine that. You mean I'm not supposed to just look at the box score? We should contextualize a player's stats based on the offense he plays in and the quarterback who delivers the passes? What? That sounds hard, Fantasy Mansion. Sounds complicated. Then fine. Then don't ever visit playerprofiler.com again. You don't need it. If your goal isn't to find the truth about players, just open the box score, let those high-level counting stats wash over you, close the app, and go on with your life in the matrix. I don't care. Just don't ask me why I don't have Jared Cook ranked higher in my dynasty rankings. We have Kenny Britt ranked higher than consensus on the playerprofiler.com dynasty rankings because a 1,000 yards on the Rams 
is exceptional. We have Brian Quick ranked higher than consensus on the playerprofiler.com dynasty rankings because 500 yards as the number three receiver for the Rams is also impressive. It's all a hell of a lot more impressive than Geronimo Allison's performances this year. Yet in a recent dynasty startup, Geronimo Allison was drafted before Jeff Janis and before Brian Quick. Geronimo Allison is the quintessential replacement-level NFL player. He would cap out as any team's number five wide receiver. The prototypical practice squad body, that is Geronimo Allison. Best comparable player on playerprofiler.com, Jazz Reynolds. Because we don't have any players with a 96.8 spark score, 21st percentile, that also had a college dominator well below average. If you're going to have a low college dominator, you better offer rare athleticism like Tyreek Hill. And if you're not athletic, your dominator better be above average like Jarvis Landry or Willie Sneed. You can't be both a below-average athlete, and a below-average college producer and expect to have a significant career in the NFL. Drafting Geronimo Allison in a dynasty startup is a wasted pick. Why? Because context matters. You're much better drafting any active wide receiver on the Rams roster. Pharaoh Cooper, Michael Thomas. It doesn't matter. The talent profile of those players is much higher. The fact is, Geronimo Allison could be out of the league next year, but he's perceived to be an exciting young player with a high ceiling because Green Bay players that play with Aaron Rodgers are simply perceived to be much better than they actually are. And sports fans and fantasy gamers are both guilty of this. Why can't sports fans and fantasy gamers be discerning when evaluating wide receiver skill sets and see that quarterback play clearly matters? We went through this with James Jones last year. James Jones was reborn with Aaron Rodgers last year because of course he was. You give a player snaps with Aaron Rodgers, even a player with poor separation skills and bad hands will still produce WR3 fantasy numbers tethered to Aaron Rodgers. James Jones proved that last year. And then what happened this offseason? No other NFL team had any interest in James Jones, and James Jones descended into the abyss once untethered from Aaron Rodgers. And Geronimo Allison is going to join him there sooner rather than later. How do I know this? Because I contextualize wide receiver abilities. But one thing I'm not worried about are Geronimo Allison's tweets. Our good friends at Barstool Sports got 8,500 retweets and 15,000 likes by exposing Geronimo Allison's tweets from 2012. Barstool Sports, the lowest common denominator sports media platform in existence today. They tweeted a gallery of old Geronimo Allison tweets Headlined by, quote, I wonder if Iowa females got dat drip drop wet wet pussy. End quote. And there are three more sexually charged tweets from Geronimo Allison. The old tweets exposed is yet another provocative tactic used by the lowest common denominator to get attention, to get retweets. So I have vowed I will never retweet the ice cold takes, even if they're from my father, Skip Bayless, who's had many, 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 many old, cold, old, cold, old, cold takes. 
like Aaron Rodgers is overrated, like LeBron James is overrated, but it doesn't matter because he never checks his mentions. Not once, not ever. Skip Bayless never checking his mentions is the smartest non-action in all of sports broadcasting. Because if Skip Bayless checked his mentions, his face would melt like the Nazi from Indiana Jones. But whether it's Skip Bayless or Geronimo Allison digging around social media accounts looking for posts from five years ago, that's narc behavior. It's narc behavior and it has no value. It's uncomfortably embarrassing to read these tweets from Geronimo Allison, but they're not funny. They're a passive censor on speech, just like trolling individuals with negative sentiments suppresses future public speech. We talked about how Denny Carter opted not to send out a tweet about Joe Flacco because he was afraid of the responses. Well, exposing the old posts has the same suppressive effect on public speech. So just don't retweet old tweets. Leave them in a past when the person who initially posted the message was new to the platform, thought it was something closer to MySpace or Tinder. Big deal. Geronimo Allison thought Twitter was like Tinder five years ago. But great job, Barstool Sports. You got him. An 18-year-old misused social media. You got him, Barstool Sports. Great job. Pulitzer Prize winning material there. <laughs> Fodder for the sports apes. That's what Barstool Sports is. It's just a feeding trough for sports apes. If BarstoolSports.com had a scent, it would smell like the zoo on a hot July afternoon. That would be the scent that emanates from BarstoolSports.com.